This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Uh, I know so many of you, and I'm really uh, privileged to be able to talk to you about what employers are looking for and thinking and doing now in the healthcare space and how that affects you and how I think, at least, you might respond to the challenges of the changing environment. So this is a little bit of an inversion of what Peter talked to you about this morning. Um, Rather than looking at this question of quality through the lens of the opportunities you see to identify and improve care and care processes, I want to talk to you about what the environment is asking of you and other healthcare professionals and think aloud with you about ways you can respond to that external expectation. And obviously, in a nutshell, the world around you thinks of quality in a somewhat different way than you do and some of the programs and projects you've talked about this morning. So all of that is admirable and worthy, and we want you to keep doing it, and we want you to think about quality through the lens of patients and employers and the community as a whole and and what you can be doing to engage more successfully there. Let me say a minute about what PBGH, Pacific Business Group on Health, is, for those of you who don't know us. Um, it's an association of about 60 large purchasers of health care. So most of those are private sector organizations like Safeway Stores or Boeing Airplanes or Intel Chips, and they obviously employ hundreds of thousands of Americans, and they want those people to be healthy at work and to be happy with their health benefit offerings. And a number of them are public sector organizations like CalPERS, the state of Washington, um, Covered California, and its enrollees. We also work with them. So what all those organizations, public and private, and and frankly, University of California is one of our largest members, so all of you in this room, at least most of you, are probably represented by me and my organization in advocating for the quality of health care you get. And in fact, uh, Caltech, USC, Stanford are also members. So we do have an extra sensitivity to the needs of, of academic organizations and of academic medical centers. So I speak to you through the lens of those who buy, pay for, and supply, if you like, healthcare to working people of all kinds, and what are they looking for? And I'll say at the outset, they do appreciate and admire what you do as academic medical centers. They value the clinical care, the complex care you can offer. They value the teaching mission and the research mission and the community service and care to vulnerable populations so many of you provide. So we get that, and we support that. We want to sustain that. And the, uh, they are skeptical that the reputational claims, the historical claims to excellence are being documented adequately to justify special treatment or special payment. So as you are providing services that are, that's com- comparable to that provided by other high-quality hospitals and health systems, they want to know that there is evidence that what you're doing is actually better and even more efficient than what is done in other settings. Now, obviously, that's a challenge given your mission that achieving higher efficiency while you're also fulfilling the other dimensions of your mission is a great challenge and needs to be part of a much larger conversation that I hope we'll have some of today. What does quality mean to the people who are paying for health care? First of all, it means documented improvement in health outcomes. Are the people who work at Intel or Safeway, when they come back to work, are they healthier and more functional than when they left to receive care from you and others? Can you document that outcomes are improved? Now, that often means longitudinal clinical outcomes. It also means patient-reported outcomes. Uh, But we are challenging you to step up your ability to document those kinds of outcomes. It also means conforming to best practices, evidence-based medicine, guidelines, et cetera, and showing that you can reliably and uniformly fulfill the best standards of care in the country in ways that we can observe and validate. And finally, it's about 
achieving a, f a fulfilling patient experience. Some of the dimensions that Dr. Pronovos talked about this morning around compassion and engagement with people where they are, um, our members care incredibly about that. And I think as purchasers have become more active in the market and in talking directly to you and your organizations, one of the values they bring to that conversation are the basic human values of respect, communication, compassion, engagement that has not always been as palpable in some of the settings you all work in. Um, but if you come from a company like a Nordstrom or an Apple or a Disney, they live and die every day on the quality of the experience of the people who come through their doors. And that has been inculcated all the way through those corporations and their staff and their health benefits people to expect that of other people that they contract with and pay a lot of money to. And if they don't feel like they're getting that, that's a concern. And frankly, I know some of you this morning talked about HCAPS as a metric, and it's fine, but it doesn't really address this level of depth of human experience that we're talking about. So I would also challenge you to think about ways you can demonstrate that people who come into your care really leave with a fulfilling, meaningful, successful human experience. They also care that all the things I just mentioned are transparent and public. They believe that they are spending an enormous amount of money on behalf of people who work for them and on behalf of their shareholders, in many cases, or taxpayers. And as a re result, they expect you to prove that you are spending that money effectively and efficiently. So transparency about the things people care about, like health outcomes and costs, is something that is considered a prerequisite to further engagement with the employer community. Now, I know this is a challenging framework for academic medical centers for many reasons, some of which were described in the culture discussion we just had. All of you are trying to deliver high-quality care. And all of you are dealing, as you said this morning, within cultural and institutional constraints and historical constraints of subspecialty domains and so on that are very challenging to overcome. I want to talk primarily about the external environment. Outside your thick walls that give you some insulation, there is a storm brewing. And of course, you capture some glimmers of this when you pick up the paper or listen to the news or watch politics. But I want to focus primarily on that external environment that I'm certainly part of and what does it mean for the efforts you have to improve quality care for your patients. There are a lot of ways this external environment affects you. The most important that I think we'll talk about today is resources. What money do you have and what constraints come with that money as you undertake to improve the quality of care your patients receive? But there are other constraints. The biggest one is probably cultural, that patients come to you with expectations and employers come to you with expectations. And we have a socioeconomic environment which isn't always favorable to receiving and executing the best care. Um, there are also rules and regulations that come upon you and around you. And we are about to see, if you read today's news, changes to those rules and regulations that may facilitate better care but may also inhibit it in some ways. So we should talk some about that. It's important for you to appreciate that while I'm standing here speaking for a Safeway or an Intel in some sense, you won't hear much of a different message anymore from a Medicaid administrator or a Medicare administrator. The alignment of purchasers around what is value has become extremely close. And I'll highlight a couple examples of that as I go through this. The first point is we basically agree on the problem. We purchasers across all sectors and settings agree that the cost of health care is unacceptably high, period. In this country now, benefits for a family coverage is running around $18,000 per year. Now, you know if you were a clerk at Safeway, one of our members, or Walmart, one of our members, $18,000 of your total compensation being transferred to you is a huge proportion of the family's resources. 
in exchange for what should be extremely high valuable health care if I'm earning $30,000, $35,000 a year as a clerk and $18,000 of my compensation is going to the health system, I have to ask, am I getting value for that? And is it acceptable to take that much wealth out of the pockets of working Americans and transfer it to us? So that's the question on the minds of employers. And they look around the world, and no one else in the world is paying at that per capita rate of healthcare expenditure and consumption. And that challenge will not go away. There will continue to be pressure to reduce that total healthcare spending number. Um, the quality has been perceived as unreliable. So I can't be confident that when I refer a patient to one institution or another, I'm going to be getting, even within the UC system, that I can be confident I'm getting comparable levels of quality. If I'm a big employer like Wells Fargo, and I have employees all over the country in little groups of 50 or 100 employees in every bank branch, how do I say to the employee in North Carolina and the employee in Bakersfield, I am assuring you for that $18,000, I'm going to give you a reliable level of care? They can't do that today, and they're expecting to be able to do that, and they're trying a lot of things to move toward that level of consistency and reliability in what they can offer their employees. Um, and finally, I think they're looking for commitment. They want to know that you wake up in the morning thinking about them, thinking about what am I doing today to drive efficiency and drive improvement and disrupt the way I've done things in the past to lower that $18,000 number and improve those quality numbers we just looked at in ways that matter to the public. Now, this charge, while I would say all purchasers are agreed, the reality is this charge is being led by Medicare. CMS and CMMI over the last four, eight years have really done a lot to lead the rest of us down some pathways. And certainly the big buckets, accountable care organizations, bundled payments, medical homes in broad categories, are the things that all the purchasers are focused on one way or another. And I want to come back to those a little bit and think about how academic medical centers can be fully engaged in that work. But it's important to see that Medicare is the leader, but the private sector is running right at the heels of it. Um, I'm affiliated with a group called the Healthcare Transformation Task Force, which is about 40 large delivery systems. So Dignity, for example, is, is a member of that organization. Providence is a member of that organization. And the big health plans, like Aetna and Signa, are members of that organization. They are committed that 75% of all of their dollars spent by 2020 will be in value-based arrangements where you are bearing risk for outcomes as part of the contractual relationship. So that's the private sector and the delivery system saying we own that target. We're going to get to 75% value-based payment and out of fee-for-service in the next now three, four years. But I want to, maybe this is an and, I want to blur the distinction between public sector and private sector because, as I've said, I think the problem finding is the same and the solution set is somewhat the same. Um, they agree that cost, quality, and patient experience are the targets, that ACOs, bundles, and medical homes are the solutions, that CMS can drive things and the private sector can follow on CMS. It's important to know from our point of view that while in the old days, Medicaid was over there and Medicare was over there and then my employees were here, that is all blurred, partly because of Medicaid expansion and partly because of the role of the exchanges. But it's turned out that people now move between these programs and products quite a lot. And that has encouraged people to say, I mean, even the employers are saying with these discussions of Medicaid block grants and so on, gee, wait a minute, I don't want as an employer to be hiring people who might have been on Medicaid and gotten lousy care. I need to feel like everyone in the country is being, having access to some base level of care. So 
the interest level, uh, we're doing a lot of work on maternity care right now. Half the births in California are delivered under Medicaid payment, half under commercial payment. If we want to address Medicaid, Medicaid, maternity quality care, we have to have Medicaid and commercial doing this and saying to you who are delivering babies, here are the things we are expecting from you, here's how we're going to pay you, here are the measures we want to have from you. Medicaid and commercial have to be saying the same things to you so that you will re-engineer your care in a single consistent way for every baby regardless of who's paying the bill. So that alignment has become quite strong. As you look at the external environment, especially now, literally today, when they're introducing legislation for the reconciliation bill in Congress, um, there's a paradox that I can't solve, but I think you have to embrace this paradox and live with it and wrestle with it, which is there are two schools of thought about how to fix American health care. One is we call crudely the consumerist view, that if we give people access to money, to health savings accounts and other accounts, they will, and high deductibles, they will use the opportunity to spend that money very prudently. They will shop for care, and they will thereby send a signal to you to be more conservative and lower in your price, and that will lower the cost of health care and increase efficiency in the market. Consumers will be the best tool to drive good judgment in, in the marketplace. The alternative view is we could call a managed care point of view, which is that we need coordinated, integrated systems of care which take risk for a population, look more or less like Kaiser, and they will manage care on behalf of a lot of people, receive a big chunk of money at the beginning of every year, and figure out the right ways to spend it and allocate it across all the resources they have. The election sent a signal that the consumerist view is going to have a lot of political support. And if you read the draft Republican proposals for reform, literally today, they are primarily about expanding consumer accounts so that consumers will be more in the driver's seat, spending their own money to seek out care from you with very high deductibles and varying amounts of subsidy or support from their employer or the government to help them afford those choices. These are pretty polarized views. The paradox here is that neither is likely to go away. You are going to have to live in both worlds. We can't predict how fast either of these models will prevail. I will say the employers um, are, have a foot in both camps themselves. Most of them think it's appropriate for consumers to have a certain amount of skin in the game and be at risk for some of their decisions. And they believe the best care comes from coordinated, integrated care systems. So the question is, how do you offer a product or a service to the community as a whole which can work in both domains? How do we simultaneously encourage consumerism and the organization of care systems without the federal government making it happen? So that's going to devolve to us in the market and to the states to figure out the blend of those two models. So the question for you, you probably, and neither am I, are going to solve that problem. The question is, what can you as professionals and as institutions do in this mixed environment? I, I want to address that in three topics. One is coverage and financing. One is care transformation, and one is intellectual infrastructure, intellectual support. Because I think the UCs can address all three of those in important ways, coverage, care transformation, and intellectual backbone of this process. And I hope you will, you will, you will take the encouragement from me to do that. Um, at the same time, there are three places you can exercise those muscles. One is the policy world. You are incredibly influential and have enormous reputation and stature in Congress and the State House to use your influence to advocate for constructive changes in the environment. Secondly, you deliver a lot of care. 
you can be models of exemplary care which others will borrow from. And third, you are an intellectual, enormous intellectual horsepower in this room and in all the rooms that you connect to. So I hope you will use those three platforms to get across solutions that will help us solve this national dilemma. So first, let me talk about coverage and financing. First, the Republican proposals. We're expecting a shift to account-based plans, HSAs, high deductibles. We're probably going to see a loss of coverage for many people who recently gained coverage. Now, obviously, Republicans have said that won't happen, but it, most of the instruments they are discussing are likely to lead to reduced coverage for some people. Um, most states will acquire more responsibility and authority for spending money. So even things that we have gotten accustomed to expecting federal decisions on will now become state decisions. We'll probably see a return to fee-for-service in some form or other. The new secretary of HHS is a strong advocate for physician autonomy and for fee-for-service payment. And whether he also says he supports MACRA, the new physician payment legislation. So finding a way for the MACRA structure to accommodate continued independent physician practice will be something I'm sure he'll be working on, and there are certainly tools to do that. We'll see less federally dictated measurement. So the measurement burden many of us complain about will be in effect transferred to the states and private payers. That may actually mean less uniformity compared to what we already have, as every payer is again free to do their own thing without as much standardization coming from the government. And I think there's a risk I'm concerned about of less focus on outcomes as we move back toward a more fee-for-service process, units of service-oriented economy. At the same time, we're going to see some purchasers, like some of my members, continuing to look for accountable care organization type arrangements where your institutions are at risk for a population and its health. And we are certainly committed. Many of our members are pursuing that model very aggressively. So my questions to you to think about in this category of coverage and financing, first of all, how can you be attractive to consumers in a world of high deductible health plans? Now, the primary consideration every study has found is people are cost sensitive. When they are spending their own money, they're very cost sensitive. The UCs and other academic medical centers are not historically low cost. How do you create an environment in which you are attractive to people spending their own money for every service they need to contemplate? That, I think, raises questions about teamwork and efficiency and, and leadership that uh, many of the people this morning talked about. It also raises the question of how do you develop practice models that save money? So innovating, we heard a lot about innovating for quality today. How do you innovate for quality in a way which is cost-saving? And you can make that a primary metric and in turn translate it to the public audience. For example, the efficient and appropriate use of new technology. The UCs are in a brilliant position to be the flag bearers for efficient and appropriate use of new technology. You've got the expertise to do those evaluations and to deploy that technology across your system and to document it and broadcast it that we are not tech-happy, we are tech-appropriate, and we are only using technologies which extend life, improve quality of life, and reduce cost, and we have a mechanism for demonstrating that systematically. Um, how, do you how do you leverage your very positive reputation with consumers in a time when they are economically very constrained? Uh, on the policy side, I would ask you to think about how you can capture what you have learned, talking to your patients, in the changes to HSAs and other programs that are coming. So, for example, one of our very large members has been using health savings accounts and high-deductible health plans for many years and has seen that patients, even though a mammogram is a covered benefit, it's an essential health benefit, should be free, people think 
they're going to have to dip into their pocket to pay for it so they don't get it. So how do you create an environment and a culture where people in that new world of financing and coverage still get the necessary care they need and you're out there in front encouraging them, encouraging them to get that care? And how do you then tell the IRS or the state legislators or the federal legislators you need to change the laws and rules so that our patients will be seeking and getting the care they need? And I think that, therefore, you need to do more at the state level to think about state-level advocacy functions you can undertake. There will be more of this authority at the state. You all are, when you walk, any one of you in this room walk into a state senator or state legislator's office, you are credible. And you need to think about how you can use your expertise in care to help influence the rules by which the state is going to administer these programs going forward. Second bucket I want to talk about is care transformation and uh, the alternative payment models. How many of you know what an APM is? Pretty good, uh, third to a half. So these alternative payment models are, are part of the macro legislation. And uh, I would probably say by a year from now, everybody in this room better know what an APM is. Every physician in the country who receives any money from Medicare will be affected by APMs or the alternative, the MIPS program, the incentive payment program. And they will be encouraged, and the CMS is very committed to encouraging people to move into an alternative payment model, like an ACO or a bundled payment or an advanced medical home. Under an APM, physicians will be getting more money or risk of losing money depending on their performance as part of a team delivering care under one of these more integrated models. Under the traditional MIPS program, they're going to be at risk for losing substantial money if they don't have good quality measures, good performance on quality. We think this success of this model needs to be built on a strong primary care foundation. And we think the dials are going to be turned in a way which disfavors specialists and probably favor primary care. These models, these primary care heavy models, have to take advantage of all the skills of people in this room and all of your colleagues to be successful. It's not a matter of parking a primary care physician or a nurse practitioner in an office park somewhere and hoping for good results. It's about building an entire infrastructure and team around primary care. We need to build teams that can address complex health issues of the kind many of you see as a team and manage patients' health over time and across settings. These are really simple attributes that the employers are looking for. Manage people over time across settings with strong primary care and coordination. As we mentioned this morning, you've got an IT infrastructure now which will facilitate that if it's tuned in the right way. You've certainly got the expertise and personnel across the UCs to build that kind of a model. The history of fee-for-service and the history of subspecialty medicine and the history of academic medical centers doesn't bode well for you succeeding in that environment. So I think you are going to be very challenged and in the next two or three years to show that you can deliver those attributes I described, coordinated longitudinal outcomes accountable care across the whole continuum as an institution in order to succeed in advanced payment models and in contracting with employers and with CMS. I will tell you the um, AAMC, the Association of Academic Medical Centers, has not been providing enough leadership, and I think the UCs and others like you need to. There is still a, a posture that we will defend our turf. We can get more money for GME. We can get more money for our particular interest group. And everybody else in the country is doing the same thing. And if that's the game we're going to play for the next few years, I think you will actually be disadvantaged. I don't think you'll prevail because the economic pressures are so great. Um, I think you need to discuss how to succeed under the new models, not how to deflate the new models. 
So I think, again, you've got the horsepower to be very proactive in defining the successful models under this new regime, influencing both your colleagues in the clinical setting, the management layer, and the external environment of what those models need to look like to be viable. So to go specifically about the, the ACOs, for example, the employers are where they can, and this is a market issue, engaging directly in accountable care organizations with provider systems. So organizations like some of our members are going to, Boeing in Seattle is a very prominent example, went directly to the University of Washington, interestingly, and to Providence Health System, and negotiated a direct contract with, without a health plan in the middle, encouraging employees from Boeing to go to the University of Washington system to get their care in a narrow network construct. It was not a very favorable price negotiation for the university, I'll tell you frankly. Boeing is saying, we're going to drive a hard bargain. We could go to any of seven systems in the Seattle area. If you want to be our partner, here's what you got to do. And it's an extremely intense and close relationship between the buyer and the seller, where the seller, in this case the university system, has to step up and say, we're willing to change. We're going to do things differently. We're going to invest differently. We're going to measure differently. We're going to internally reward our people differently to satisfy the needs of our community. That's a tough swallow. And it's been, I think, a challenging process, but it is what's going on. And I think you need to think about how well, I know you've got a number of initiatives underway now. Um, to do that, you're going to be getting more and more of that, both from Medicare and from the commercial side. Um, bundle payments. As I mentioned, we have a bundle payment program a number of our employers use. Johns Hopkins is one of the partners in that program as a clinical partner. Kaiser, it turns out, is one of our centers of excellence for knee and hip surgery at Kaiser Irvine. Um, we did a national study of everybody in the country doing hip and knee replacement. We looked very rigorously at quality measures. We looked at individual surgeon quality performance, and we disqualified surgeons within centers. So a hospital system that was being considered for us might say, we have eight great orthosurgeons to do knee replacements. We would say we're only going to allow our patients to see these two. So the employer is getting very much in your face with what we are looking for and what we are demanding in terms of quality and performance. We demanded that those organizations give us patient-reported outcome data every year. We demanded that they send their surgeons to a common meeting every year. So the Johns Hopkins surgeons sit down with the Kaiser surgeons and compare notes on clinical performance and methodology. We are trying to take the best institutions in the country and make them better. And we are only going to contract with providers who are willing to step up to that. And we're essentially saying to a San Francisco patient who works at Safeway, sorry, don't go to UCSF. Go to Kaiser Irvine because they're better. So you have to be ready to respond to that challenge as employers come to you and say, I got this data from Kaiser Irvine. Show me you're doing as well or better than they are. Here are the metrics I'm looking for. So that's where the bundle payments thread is, is taking us as buyers. On uh, health homes, primary care redesign, you've got tremendous, brilliant national leaders within the UC system who work in this space. Looking at Sam, um, I think this, this stuff has been going on in your system, and you should be very proud of it. You should be generalizing it. You should be spreading it. Um, this pressure under MIPS and MACRA on primary care will be enormous and potentially productive because there's a tremendous national investment in redesigning, transforming primary care as the basis of efficiency in the health system. I think you really can step up and own a primary care expertise that could be of tremendous value to all the rest of us in the country. So the things I think you should think about in this space of care transformation, to be less knee-jerk in reacting to payment changes, 
And for every payment change that comes down the line, say to yourselves, how do we succeed under this new model? How do we teach others to succeed under this new model? You've got the expertise to pull that off. That extends down to things like what quality measures would make sense for primary care or for knee replacement. You can be leaders in defining that. Um, Secondly, you need to be and have your folks engaged in the details of the models that are being reviewed by Congress and CMS. Every doctor in America will have their pay changed by these models. These models could either reward or not reward the values you hold dear as academic medical center leaders. If you care about the research mission, the education mission, the community service mission, and the clinical mission, you need to look at these new APMs and say, is this going to help the country in the long term and the large scale? Are we not sub-optimizing some payment gimmick and at the expense of something we care about as the holders of this mission? So I hope you will get in the guts of the CMMI work and the PTAC, which is the committee reviewing the alternative payment models, and CMS, and be very visible and articulate in defending the values you care about, not to fight the payment changes, but to improve them so they reward the things you care about. Um, Educating the public. You do directly educate the public, obviously, um, and you indirectly educate the public every time a patient walks through your halls. Um, I think you need to step up in these very complex, confusing times and make sure your patients and their families understand the changes that are going on and how they can be effective in this environment. What do they need to do to make good choices? How can you help them make good choices? Um, We need the entire community to have its understanding of healthcare elevated to be part of this conversation with us. Third, as part of the care transformation discussion, you all need to be parts of teams. We heard that over and over again this morning. Um, Individual um, stars is not going to be the way to achieve the goals of cost effectiveness and better outcomes for people. We need to prove that teams really work, and I think you can spread that gospel among your colleagues as well. And finally, a pet interest of ours, outcome measures. Um, Some of the best outcome measures in the country came out of academic medical centers, out of clinical trials, those kinds of environments. They have not made it into mainstream measurement. We care about them. You all know how to do them. Again, AAMC has not been supportive of outcome measures. It's very frustrating to have the, the advocacy organization for you go forward and say, well, we're not sure we're ready. We can't risk adjust them. It's too hard. The data is not available. That's very limiting to progress. We mean, what it means is we measure quality by claims data. And we measure quality by claims data, you lose. I'll tell you that. If we don't get out of that trap, AMCs are not going to look good over the long term. You are in the position to advocate for meaningful outcome measures that reflect case mix and complexity and socioeconomic dimensions and other things you all care about as part of the way the system evolves. And if you let the argument be controlled by by naysayers, then it will be controlled by process measures and cost measures. And cost measures will prevail, undoubtedly. The third thing I wanted to talk about was the intellectual backbone issue, which I think I've alluded to a couple times. You all house the nation's resources for solving these kinds of problems. You have the clinical expertise, you have the economic expertise, the policy expertise to address these very complex questions. And I think I would just love to see the UCs step up as a group and say, we are going to offer strong solutions to the challenges that are, that are here in front of us. I'll give you quick examples. Uh, risk adjustment. Sounds very technical, kind of esoteric. 
You, you do see it in the headlines now because the insurance companies are having huge fights about how much they owe the government and the government owes them and how much they're going to get paid. It's going to affect every outcome measure, every quality measure, every payment system. You all could do a lot of work on risk adjustment. Many of you know Shelley Greenfield, an old friend of mine at Irvine. Um, he's got a risk adjustment instrument. Some of you are involved in trialing it in your settings. I don't know if that's the right instrument, but that's the kind of thing you all could say, we are going to contribute to the national dialogue with solutions around risk adjustment. Um, data analytics. You've got tremendous IT expertise here at integrating claims data, clinical data, patient data, and producing dashboards and analytics for those things. That's a really important value right now. It's a need the country has. How do we do big data analytics in a way which demonstrates cost and quality? Third, health economics. Not directly in some of your programs, but affiliated with you. I was puzzling over this the other day, thinking about talking to you, and I realized I'm on a CBO, Congressional Budget Office Committee, of all economists except for me and a couple other people, and they're all from Harvard. I said, why are they all from Harvard? I know great economists in the UC system. Why? And one from Stanford. All from Harvard, one from Stanford, one from Minnesota, none from UC. Why aren't UC economists on that system, especially given California's unusual history with delegated groups and risk and so on, capitation? Um, you need to be at that table. So I talked to some of my Harvard friends about what's unusual there. And I won't play out a case study, but I think you need to think about why aren't we at that table influencing Congress with the best economic minds in our system? What do we need to do differently? And one of the links is the Harvard Medical School and the Kennedy School and the Business School are like this on these healthcare issues. They have tight interdisciplinary strategy and they're very conscious of it. It's not an accident. It's not just friends from drinking. They actually work very purposefully to make sure they are developing intellectual firepower on the emerging issues of health economics and health policy. And I think you need to, to consider doing that kind of thing. Uh, primary care and multidisciplinary models. Kevin Grumbach, Sam, you've got just tremendous people in this system who've done work on multidisciplinary care and primary care models. You should really be trumpeting that. But the question isn't that there are great people, which you all know, in this organization, and they publish, and they're visible, and they do their thing. It's what do you as a system do to encourage, support, finance, embrace, promote what they're doing? And how do you embed in your quality work the things that are coming out of these individual efforts? I heard the word silo a lot this morning. We talked about it mostly in a clinical sense. But there are intellectual silos, too. And I hope you will aggressively pursue intellectual integration so that the expertises you have all over this enormous system can help solve these broader national challenges. So let me wrap up with just a few final comments. First, try not to look like a guild. There are a lot of guilds out there. They're all banging their tin cup, asking for more money because we're the most important sector of American healthcare. Um, I think you can get above that. You can prove that you provide superior quality and cost, and you can prove that you have a distinctive mission and you can prove that you add value to society, and then you have to adapt to the changing environment, not just argue about it. You have competencies that are critical in a value-based healthcare world. I've mentioned some of them in this last couple minutes. You add a lot of value, but try not to ride on your reputation. Um, I think the next era is an opportunity to build a new reputation, where you are the champions of innovative, value-oriented care where you deliver the highest quality care and continuously seek efficiency and affordability. Finally, be very attuned to the environment. Uh, the projects I heard described and are in the packet here are all noble, worthy projects that will certainly help patients um, here and there. 
they don't respond to the, what the environment is asking of you, which is to transform the care model to radically demonstrate efficient use of very expensive resources, both human and technical, to be fully transparent to the public about what you do so they can judge you and others and encourage you to improve and reward you for improving. Quality to the larger community is not about fine-tuning care processes. It's about healthy people getting back to work, getting back to their families, resuming functioning, and they're expecting you to prove you can do that better than other people do it. You know, the country is floundering right now, frankly, to find a better way to organize and deliver health care. People in UC, at UC have the intellectual resources to solve that problem and provide a pathway for the country. I hope you will really focus your efforts on solving that. Thanks. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.